You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Just a quick note about this week's episode. It features a lecture by Dr. Lou DeMarco on the 2006 Battle of Ramadi provided at the Dole Institute of Politics. After I heard the lecture, I felt it not only provided a unique summary of the battle, but also multiple lessons for future urban operations. Special thanks to both Dr. DeMarco and the Dole Institute of Politics for giving us permission to do so. Well, enjoy the episode. Hello, my name is Dr. Lou DeMarco, and I am a professor at the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College, and I will be presenting a short presentation on the 2006 Battle of Ramadi in Iraq. So, the fight for Ramadi, 2006, a turning point in the U.S. war in Iraq. The Battle of Ramadi took place in 2006. 2006, the United States was three years into its occupation of Iraq following the 2003 invasion. The Battle of Ramadi took place in western Iraq in the El Anbar province. Ramadi is the province capital. At the time in 2006, the situation in Iraq was rather chaotic. In summary, most of 2003 and 2004 were spent with the initial invasion of Iraq, Operation Iraqi Freedom One occurring early in 2003, and then adjusting to the post-war situation in Iraq after Saddam Hussein's forces were defeated. In this chaotic post-war situation, it took months for the U.S. forces and the U.S. political leaders to recognize that the situation in Iraq was much different than what they expected. And in fact, uh, insurgencies had broken out throughout the country. By 2006, you had at least four major problems, insurgent-type problems, existing in Iraq. One was an insurgency led by foreign fighters known as al-Qaeda in Iraq. Another insurgency focused in Al-Anbar province and was a insurgency led by former Ba'athist and Sunni Iraqi nationalists. There was a third insurgency built around Shiite militias taking place in Baghdad and areas north and east of Baghdad. And then a fourth general criminal element, which allied itself with the various insurgencies at different times. The U.S. in 2006 had not come up with workable counterinsurgency strategy in Iraq that met the needs of providing security for the, the Iraqi people and stability sufficient for uh, the establishment of a stable Iraqi indigenous government. In 2006, the U.S. was rotating various Army and Marine brigade-sized units into Iraq on a 12-month rotational policy and then uh, assigning them to various urban areas around Iraq with the mission of providing security. In most cases, the security these brigades were able to provide was marginal at best. One exception was in the city of Telafar, where the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, commanded by then Colonel H.R. McMaster, had implemented a unique and to that point new insurgent or counterinsurgency strategy based on the idea of seizing terrain, holding it, and then passing that terrain off to indigenous Iraqi forces. The 3rd Armored Cavalry rotated out of Iraq and were replaced by a new brigade coming from Germany, the 1st Brigade Combat Team of the 1st Armored Division. After arriving in Iraq, that brigade, the 1st Brigade Combat Team of the 1st Armored Division was ordered south to reinforce U.S. Marine Command, which had responsibility for Western Iraq and all of Al-Anbar province. 
And at that point, in June of 2006, the 1st Brigade Combat Team came under the control of the 1st Marine Division with its headquarters in Fallujah and was assigned responsibility for pacifying the city of Ramadi and the area around that city. At the time in 2006, Ramadi was considered the deadliest city in Iraq. And uh, with the exception of forward operating bases that the U.S. had positioned in and around the city, the bulk of the city and its population were controlled by insurgents. And the the supreme insurgent in Ramadi was al-Qaeda in Iraq, which consisted of somewhere between 800 and 1,500 foreign fighters. The city is uh, located just south of the Euphrates River. And just north of the city, or the city is adjacent to the Euphrates River, running from west to east. In addition, an important terrain feature is the Habanya Canal, which uh, splits off from the Euphrates River and divides the city, moving from uh, north to south. And then with the the bulk of the downtown area on the east side of the uh, canal. The important military bases at the beginning of this operation are Camp Ramadi, located in the uh, northeast part of the city, and that becomes the major staging base for the 1st Brigade Combat Team. In addition, uh, there are several other camps located in the city. Hurricane Point, which is at the vicinity of the junction of the canal and the Euphrates River, and that is the uh, operating base of the Marine contingent in this battle. And then to the east of the city is Camp Corregidor, another major camp operated by a U.S. Light Infantry Battalion. Two important terrain features in the downtown area are the modern hospital located northwest corner of the city downtown, as well as the central government building. Both of those buildings, particularly the central government building, were important to the Americans, and the central government building was responsible of the Marine uh, unit. To the west of the canal in the uh, suburb of Tamin, the university district, and on the southern border of the city, you see a railroad line that runs from west to east, connecting the city with ultimately all the way to the uh, west to Syria and to the east through Fallujah to Baghdad. So these are the main features. There are two major highways that are also important to this battle. On the north side is a major four-lane highway, codenamed by the Americans MSR Mobile, and then running just south of Camp Ramadi across the canal and then directly through the downtown area and past Camp Corregidor is another major supply route codenamed Michigan. Ramadi as a city originated fairly late in the history of Iraq in 1869. And because of that, it's not built along traditional Arab city lines. There is no Kasbah old city downtown area, which you find in all of the older cities in the Middle East. The city itself was designed along more along European standards with wide paved streets and modern concrete buildings. The city hospital itself is the largest building in the downtown area, uh, seven stories tall, and there were numerous other five and six story buildings. But the dominant architecture was the typical low two to three story tall concrete flat top roof Middle Eastern uh, building. And that certainly was the uh, dominant architecture in the suburbs and residential areas. At the time of the arrival of 1st Brigade in uh, June of 2006, the city had no power. The city had no running water. There was no garbage disposal. There was no functioning city government and no phone service, either landline or cell phone service. The garbage disposal issue has some importance that is that you might not think of in addition to the uh, hygienic issues associated with that. Over several years, of basically 
uh, no city services. The city streets had been covered uh, with dirt. And so although they were modern paved streets, they were covered with dirt and strewn with debris. Also, Ramadi had been subject to numerous artillery coalition, artillery and air attacks, and the rubble from those attacks lined the city streets. And this was important because it made it very easy to hide improvised explosive devices along the routes utilized by the coalition forces as they traveled through the city. Basically, although prior to the Iraqi war, Ramadi was one of the most modern cities in Iraq. By the time the 1st Brigade Combat Team arrived there in 2006, it was a war-torn city uh, with no modern services. So the 1st Brigade Combat Team was deployed from Germany for combat in Iraq in January of 2006. Uh, It was a rather large American Army Armored Brigade, and during the combat in Ramadi consisted of five maneuver battalions, two light infantry battalions, one of which was a Marine, U.S. Marine Corps battalion, a mechanized infantry battalion, and two M1 Abrams equipped tank battalions. In addition, in support, the 1st Brigade Combat Team had an engineer uh, battalion, a self-propelled artillery battalion, and a general support logistics battalion. Two other unique attachments that the brigade had, uh, one was two platoons of U.S. Navy SEALs, and the other was a U.S. Navy Riverine boat unit, giving the uh, organization the ability to patrol the rivers and the canal with these Navy boats. However, they did not come with Navy crew, and so these boats were assigned to the Marine Battalion, who manned the Riverine craft with U.S. Marines. Upon its arrival in Ramadi in uh, June of 2006, uh, the 1st Brigade dispositions The Mechanized Infantry Battalion, 1st Battalion, 6th Infantry, was given responsibility for the city north of the river, generally a suburbs area. The Armor Battalion, 1st Battalion, 35th Armor, was given responsibility for the Tamin suburbs and the Al-Anbar University on the east side of the canal. That battalion, though, was based out of Camp Ramadi itself, but its military operations were conducted in the uh, Tamin suburb. The 1st Battalion, 37th Armor, was given responsibility for the downtown area south of the governance center. And that battalion was also based out of Camp Ramadi. Third battalion of the 8th Marines based out of Hurricane Point Combat Outpost was responsible for the downtown area, including the governance center and north to the Euphrates River. And then finally, 1st Battalion of the 506th Infantry based at Camp Corregidor on the east side of of the city was responsible for the east side of the city, south of the Euphrates River. By the base positioning of these battalions, they were in a good position to interdict traffic coming into the city from any direction, particularly the east, west, or north. South of Ramadi, once you get past the railroad line, generally uninhabited and open desert. And so there was not much of a threat of infiltration of insurgents from that direction. But moving east and west were a series of suburbs and small villages and towns that economically were positioned to take advantage of the Euphrates River and the highways that the Iraqi government had constructed paralleling the Euphrates River. Prior to the arrival of 1st Brigade, the previous unit in Ramadi, the 2nd Brigade of the 28th Infantry Division, Pennsylvania National Guard, had generally contented itself with controlling the major supply routes, mobile in the north and Michigan in the center, controlling the governance center and ensuring the protection of coalition supply and other type of units that moved along those routes. There was not an aggressive plan 
primarily because the 2nd Brigade of the 28th Division did not have as much combat power as as a light infantry brigade with no tanks or Bradleys as uh, the 1st Brigade had, and therefore they limited their mission. The leadership of the 1st Brigade and other important leaders, so 1st Brigade of 1st Armored Division was led by Colonel Sean McFarland, who had commanded the brigade for about six months before it arrived in Iraq. And uh, by the time it got to Ramadi, had been in command for about a year. And McFarland was an experienced officer with uh, over 20 years service in the U.S. Army, a graduate of West Point, and had served in Operation Desert Storm as well as U.S. operations in Kosovo. An important player and leader on the Iraqi side, allied with the 1st Brigade, was Sheikh Abdul Sattar al Rasha. And Sheikh Sattar led the civilian forces and was really the informal leader of all of the Sunni forces allied with the Americans in the Battle of Ramadi. He had started out where he was a, a minor sheikh within the tribal hierarchy of uh, the Sunni tribes that made up 95% of the population of El Anbar province. But with the arrival of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, most of the senior sheikhs had left the country, moving uh, into neighboring countries, primarily Jordan, and conducted their leadership by telephone and messenger from outside of Iraq, where they were safe from uh, reprisals or threats from Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Sheikh Sadr, though, remained behind, and because he remained personally behind in Ramadi, and because he was a very, although young, a very charismatic personality, had kind of filled a uh, power vacuum among the indigenous Iraqi leadership. As I mentioned before, there was no in-place formal city council or mayor in Ramadi. And so what governance existed, existed through the tribal leaderships of the various clans in the city. And the population of Ramadi was about 400,000 civilians. So it's a big city, almost 100 square miles of terrain. The city kind of rough boundaries of the city, east to west, 11 miles, and north to south, nine miles. And so a big city with a big population and no governance. And so what control there was of the civilian population rested with the traditional families and uh, clan and tribal leaders of which at the time of the arrival of 1st Brigade, Sheikh Sadar was one of the most prominent. And then the final person that I'll point out here is Captain Travis Patriquin. Captain Patriquin is the staff officer in the 1st Brigade, and he was in charge of civil affairs. He has a unique or had a unique background in the Army in that he had been a Special Forces Green Beret officer, served in Afghanistan as a Special Forces team leader, and then had transferred back to the regular Army as a regular Army infantryman and had initially been assigned to the Brigade Operations Office in 1st Brigade. However, the captain was a fluent Arab speaker and had immersed himself on his own initiative in Arab culture. And quickly, he was identified by Colonel McFarland as having a unique skill set that made him ideally suited to be the brigade civil affairs officer and then later dubbed the uh, brigade liaison to the Iraqi civil forces that would uh, be organized informally under uh, Sheikh Sadar but more formally as the Iraqi police. And so these three 
individuals together formed military and the political strategy, which ultimately achieved success in the Battle of Ramadi. On the opposite side, there were three different insurgent forces operating in Ramadi at the time of the battle. Al-Qaeda in Iraq, under national control of the uh, infamous terrorist or Al-Qaeda leader, Abdu Musab al-Zarqawi. Sunni insurgents who were affiliated with Al-Qaeda in Iraq, but not under their control. And then criminal elements who, for hire, would work with either of the other two insurgent groups. The mission given to 1st Brigade by General Zilner, the U.S. Marine Corps commander of the 1st Marine Division and the commander of multinational forces in western Iraq, basically all of El Anbar province. And it's a very general, fix Ramadi, but don't do a Fallujah. And what he is referring to is the earlier, more famous uh, Marine battle in Fallujah, where in a two-week period, the Marines secured the city of Fallujah, but in the process, essentially destroyed the city as part of saving it, as the infamous saying goes. And so the intent of General Zimmer was that Ramadi be pacified, but it be pacified with a minimum of violence and a minimum of damage to the civilian infrastructure or loss of civilian life. One of the very first things that Captain Patricol and uh, Colonel McFarland determined was that a city the size of Ramadi could not be pacified with just the combat power of a single U.S. Army brigade, and that they would need support from Iraqi forces. And in particular, they would need the support of the local population. And the most important element to getting that support was to form an alliance with the sheiks. An alliance with the sheiks would enable them to recruit indigenous Iraqi forces into the local police force. And that police force would provide, along with the Iraqi army, would provide the numbers that the brigade needed to hold the city once the American forces had dealt with the threat of the Al-Qaeda insurgents. Interestingly enough, a lot of the Sunni insurgents before the arrival of 1st Brigade were controlled also by the Sheiks. But at the, at the time of the arrival of 1st Brigade in June of 2006, there was a break occurring between the Sunni insurgents and Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Al-Qaeda in Iraq was trying to dominate politically uh, the province and subordinate the Sunni insurgents and their leadership. Al-Qaeda in Iraq was primarily a radical Islamic-inspired group, while the Sunni insurgents, although they were not completely secular, were more motivated by Iraqi nationalist and economic concerns. The Sunnis of El Anbar province had been the force behind Saddam Hussein's Iraqi government, and with the American invasion, they had lost both their political power and a lot of their economic capability. And they were intent on creating some kind of autonomous capability to regain some political power and regain their economic control of the province. Al-Qaeda, on the other hand, uh, was not tolerant of some of the secular economic activity, the insurgents, and certainly was not tolerant of the Sunni insurgent leadership. And so at the time the 1st Brigade arrived, what was happening was a mini civil war between the Sunnis, the indigenous Sunnis of the province, and the mostly foreign fighter-dominated Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And 1st Brigade took advantage of this to convince the Sunni sheiks that their best chance of achieving some political autonomy and regaining economic power was to break off their common cause with al-Qaeda and join with the Americans, and uh, primarily by facilitating the enlistment of young Sunni men, some of them former insurgents, into the Iraqi police 
who were then equipped and trained by the Americans and provided an important critical support structure to the combat operations of 1st Brigade. This was a new approach in Iraq, integrating the, the sheiks and their tribes and their, particularly their military age young men in support of the American effort. A unique slide show was put together that explained the Sunni awakening, the motivations of the Iraqis, and how those motivations could be aligned with U.S. goals in the country. And this slideshow was put together by Captain Patriquin and distributed throughout 1st Brigade and ultimately was distributed throughout U.S. forces and was commonly viewed in higher headquarters, including the Pentagon. And in very simple terms, it basically made the point that by understanding the culture, tribal structure, and motivations of the local Sunnis, they could be won over to the U.S. side. And because of their cultural knowledge, they would solve one of the major problems that the Americans had, which was separating out among the Arab population who were civilians, who were friendly Iraqi forces like the Sunni militias that could be integrated into the police force and who were the foreign fighters who were the sworn enemies of the Americans. In addition to winning over the local population, the other key to the success of the 1st Brigade in Ramadi was this operational concept called cop in a box. And it was basically a six-step process. And the idea was pick a group of buildings in downtown Ramadi as an ink spot that would be built into a secure, friendly Iraqi and American-controlled area. It began with the SEAL teams doing a reconnaissance, identify the right group of buildings. Once the location was selected, the SEAL teams were tasked with going in at night and securing the central building and evacuating the family that was there. They would go in with an interpreter, and as they took over these buildings and displaced the Iraqi families, the Iraqi families would be compensated $2,500 for the use of their building. Once the SEALs had secured the building, a U.S. heavy company team equipped with mine and road clearing equipment would move to reinforce the SEALs and clear the route of IEDs between the base camp where the Americans started and the a combat outpost position. Once that company team had linked up with the SEALs, the SEALs moved further out and set up sniper positions to cover the approaches to the combat outpost while the conventional infantry reinforced the combat outpost. Simultaneously, combat engineers moved to the combat outpost with sandbags and concrete pillars used to reinforce and fortify the combat outpost. Once the combat outpost was firmly established, the U.S. Army company would be reinforced by Iraqi army company and begin patrolling the area while the SEALs retained a observation posts and sniper positions on the perimeter. As they patrolled those areas, typically the Iraqi insurgents would counterattack and counterattacking through the Navy SEAL snipers and into the fortified positions of the Iraqi army and U.S. armies in the combat outpost gave every advantage to the American forces. And this was the primary means of eliminating insurgents. Once the insurgents had spent themselves on the combat outpost and more patrols had extended the perimeter, the Iraqi police forces were moved into the combat outpost to establish civilian control of the area. And the Iraqi army and U.S. army units, as well as the SEALs, were available for further missions. And so this cop in a box, SOP, was used to establish a small footprint and then expand it and systematically secure the city of Ramadi. And kind of 
visually, initial positions were the pre-established forward operating bases on the perimeter of the city. And those became the basis for moving in a predetermined systematic pattern out of those bases, establishing COPS, and then expanding those COPS, and then using those COPS to ultimately as a base to move out and establish more COPS. And so over the period of the summer of 2006 and through the fall of 2006, the combat battalions of the 1st Brigade did this in a systematic manner at a random intervals, sometimes establishing COPS in quick succession, several, two or three COPS in the period of several days or a week, and then pausing sometimes for several weeks before beginning to move to new positions. And the point here was to keep the Al-Qaeda insurgents from understanding where and when the American forces would arrive and quickly establish these fortified positions. But this was not a fast process. By January 2007, seven months into operations in Ramadi, most of the city had been secured. And by the spring of 2007, less than a year after operations began, Al-Qaeda in Iraq had been eliminated in Ramadi. The Sunni insurgency had been co-opted through the Sunni awakening to be allied with the Americans, and the criminal element had been suppressed or also integrated back into the legitimate forces allied with the Americans and the Iraqi government. The city was so secured that in the spring of 2007, far from being the most dangerous city in Iraq, in fact, the coalition forces and uh, the civilian population were able to stage a 10-kilometer road race in downtown foot race, downtown Ramadi, in which both military and civilian personnel participated without significant security concerns. And so in a less than a 12-month period, 1st Brigade was able to change the security situation in Ramadi from the most dangerous city in the country to a city in which a 10-kilometer uh, foot race could be uh, staged in which allied forces could participate. A huge change. It did not come at a small price, though. Over the course of that of its period in uh, Ramadi, the 1st Brigade estimates out of 1,500 insurgent fighters were killed and about 1,500 additional were captured and turned over to the forces of the Iraqi government. In that time period, 1st Brigade lost 83 soldiers killed in action, including, unfortunately, Captain Trequin, who was killed by a roadside improvised explosive device. Several hundred soldiers in addition were wounded, and over the course of the battle, 25 vehicles uh, were destroyed. But the legacy of the Battle of Ramadi is important. With approximately one-third or one-quarter of the combat power that was used in the Battle of Fallujah, the 1st Brigade of the 1st Armored Division was able to secure a city that was almost four times the size of the city of Fallujah. And the Sunni awakening and the cop pacification tactical approach became the political and the tactical model that General Petraeus later implemented in the successful surge of U.S. forces to Iraq, which ultimately was successful in establishing relative security throughout the country before the general withdrawal of U.S. forces in 2010-2011. So that's kind of the short-term legacy. In comparison to the more famous Battle of Fallujah, it basically offered an alternate approach to pacifying a large urban area. In the case of Fallujah, successful pacification occurred through overwhelming use of combat power and rapid military action, but at the cost of significant destruction in the city without winning over the population to the political cause of the Allies or the Iraqi government. 
On the other hand, in contrast, the Battle of Ramadi showed with a limited amount of combat power and a systematic but time-consuming approach, you could achieve the same results with much fewer damage to the infrastructure of the city and at the same time win over the political allegiance of the local leaders and the local civilian population. Long term, however, there is a critique of the approach taken in the Battle of Ramadi. And you can see in this recently published book, Illusions of Victory, which takes into account the fact that after the rise of ISIS in Iraq, in Syria, ISIS caliphate forces were able to recapture Ramadi from the Iraqi government after the U.S. forces had departed relatively easy. And part of this, some authors ascribe to the fact that in the process of liberating Ramadi in 2006 with the help of the Sunni Arabs, the Americans empowered the Sunni Arab leadership and fostered separatist views among the Sunnis vis-a-vis the Shiite-dominated Iraqi government. And then when the American forces left Iraq and the national government came to be even more dominated by the Shiite, those Sunni leaders in El Anbar were looking for an ally And that ally took the form of ISIS. And therefore, the leadership that was loyal to the Americans had no trouble later after the Americans departed in transferring that loyalty to a new sponsor. And that new sponsor was the ISIS Caliphate operating out of Syria, which quickly took control of both Fallujah and Ramadi as part of its invasion of Iraq and came close to seriously threatening the Iraqi national government. So I might mention that the U.S. commander in Iraq, Colonel McFarland, went on to a a distinguished army career and retired as as a three-star general. Sheikh Sadr, who facilitated the uh, Sunni uprising in Ramadi, uh, one of his goals was to someday uh, have a personal meeting with President Bush, and and he achieved that goal. But unfortunately, because of his influence and his among the Sunnis, and uh, also because of his alliance with the uh, Americans, he became a target of Al Qaeda and was assassinated. And so, you know, not all the heroes of the Battle of Ramadi survived. One of the other influential personalities that I mentioned was Colonel H. R. McMaster, who first brigaded work with and kind of learn many of their tactical techniques, including the concept of the combat outpost in Telefar. Uh, And of course, Colonel McMaster went on to become uh, General McMaster and a national security advisor to President Trump. Okay, so I'd like to take a minute just to say that it was my pleasure to highlight some of the accomplishments. One of the first really successful counterinsurgency accomplishment of American forces in Iraq, and particularly the soldiers of the 1st Brigade combat team and the Marines and sailors and airmen who uh, worked with them in the Battle of Ramadi, setting the stage a few years later for the surge of American forces. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point, What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.